Black to Canada is sponsored by OESeducation.org. OES Education is committed to unraveling the principles, processes, and practices that serve as the bedrock of enduring individual and corporate greatness. The objective of OES Education is to help people discover the power and energy that is within them and use it towards impacting and influencing their world. Through teaching, training, and research, OES Education has helped many individuals and institutions identify their core competencies and amplify their unique gifts and potential. OESeducation.org Welcome to the Black to Canada podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Oyenaren, and I am so excited, thrilled, happy, all of those words, and honored to have a very special guest with me today. Now, I was introduced to Carolyn back in 2016. Yes, it was 2016. Um, I had just given birth to my first son, and I um, was asked to work on a project uh, with the Ontario Black History Society on the opening of the Lucy and Thornton Blackburn Conference Center at George Brown College. So I met her there and she was just the sweetest. And for me, who's, you know, into history and a historian, meeting Carolyn was like a dream come true. <laughs> I've been a big fan when you get to meet people who have uh, you know, been doing the work for so long. It's it's such an honor and a joy. So um, since 2016, Carolyn has been such a tremendous support to me. She's been an inspiration and um, I'm so glad that I can call her friend as well. So welcome Dr. Carolyn Smarts-Frost to the Black to Canada podcast. How are you today? Well, I'm doing wonderfully and it's such a nice thing to be able to talk to you. Shannon, I'm so glad that we are friends and I've enjoyed knowing you so very much. It just seems like a much longer time than that. Yes. I realized it was so short a time. Yes, yes. Thank you so much again for being here. Now, before we get into it, I just want to read a bit of your bio so uh, people can hear a little bit about you. It's very extensive, and but it doesn't cover all of the amazing things that you've done throughout your life and career. So let me read some of your bio now. I'll leave that pause. All right, so let's get right into it, Carolyn. So could you tell us how your interest was sparked about the subject of Black history in Canada? Well, it all happened through an archeological dig. I'm actually an archeologist um, before I was an historian. Um, in 1985, I was running a program for children called the Archaeological Resource Centre, and it was sponsored by the Toronto School Board and the provincial government. Um, this was the first major archaeology education uh, facility in a school board in the world, and so we were trying new things and trying to find out what would be the right way of approaching it, and we were looking for a place for our pilot project. So it was a place where school children from the Toronto schools, many, many of whom come from all over the world, could go on a real dig. I wanted something the children could relate to. And I have never, I'm an historical archaeologist, I'm talking about the archaeology of the colonizers yes. uh, when I say that. Um, and when I was, in those days, we didn't 
um, I wasn't interested in what they call, I, was, I would always call the archaeology of the rich, famous, or military. I've always been fascinated by the archaeology of the people who one might think were ordinary. And when we study them, we find out they weren't ordinary at all. Um, so we checked the records for the oldest school property the Toronto Board owned. Seemed like a good idea to dig in a schoolyard. Mm -hmm. um, and as it turned out, the old Sackville Street School had been built in 1887 in what was effectively the backyard of a couple named Thornton and Lucy Blackburn. That's now the Inglenook Community School um, on Eastern Avenue, just north of the distillery district. Anyway, the street directories for the 1850s, which were like telephone books before there were telephones, that's how you found somebody's address, said the householder on that property was a black man named Thornton Blackburn, who had a cab business. How interesting. Mm -hmm. Then we found the Blackburn's tombstone in the Toronto Necropolis. It said he was a native of Maysville, Kentucky. Kentucky being a slave state, of course. An old newspaper article said the Blackburns had started Toronto's first taxi business, first taxi business. We learned that they had lived in that house on Eastern Avenue from 1834 through the 1890s when they died. And so Thornton died first and then Lucy, she was actually older than he was, but, but he was the one who passed away first. Knowing they came from Kentucky, I wondered if this was an underground railroad story. And so it proved. Mm -hmm. The dig at the Blackburn site was the, the first underground railroad archeological site ever excavated in Canada. And it got more publicity than any dig in Canadian history after the labor. People came from all over. We had newspaper articles and radio wow. interviews from Kuwait to Japan. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and it changed my life. <laughs> yes, yes. So now can you tell us more about your professional and academic journey? Well, I was 27 when I found the Blackburn site. Too young to know what you couldn't do, so we were going out and we were doing it, right? The first thing I did after we discovered the location, though, was I went to see Dr. Daniel Hill. Now, Dr. Hill was, as you know, of course, um, the president emeritus of the Ontario Black History Society and one of the founders of the society, because I wanted to ask the Ontario Black History Society if this was an appropriate site to dig, if it was something that the society thought was, was important for us to do, and where they would feel comfortable with school children and members of the public participating in the excavation. Dr. Hill asked me to speak at the OBHS annual meeting in 1985, 36 years ago. Wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Everyone thought a dig at the Blackburn site was a terrific idea, and the OBHS loaned us their brand new exhibit, which was mounted in this outdoor exhibit space on the site. Everybody who came to visit, where 10,000 people signed the guest book, and I don't know how many people didn't, 3,000 school children dug on the site. And everybody saw that wonderful exhibit. And the OBHS brought group after group after group to visit the site. Um, I even have photographs of Sunday school teachers with their classes and these beautifully dressed ladies down cushion, on cushions, I had cushions, <laughs> to excavate at the site, to participate in this excavation of what was the first site on the Underground Railroad heritage of this country. It's an amazing experience. The project changed my life. Mm -hmm. 
I fell in love with the Blackburns, and today, 36 years later, I have never fallen out of love with them. <laughs> I spent more than 20 years of my life, Shannon, following their story in slavery and freedom. Yeah. The Blackburns couldn't read and write. They had no children. So within a generation of their deaths, their story had been forgotten. To boot, and I didn't know this at the time, nobody had actually ever written a biography of a freedom-seeking couple who couldn't read and write and had no children. Mm -hmm. This was absolutely the first time it was done and I had no wow. idea. Wow, <laughs> groundbreaking. Well, I went back to Kentucky. That was the first thing I did. I went to Kentucky mm -hmm. uh, and I visited Mayfield and started following up the history and the places where the Blackburns have been. It took me, that journey took me to 13 American states because the slaveholding families who had the records moved across with the westward movement in the United States. Now, I did a lot of work on this, and then I went back and saw Dr. Hill and said, I really want to write a book on the Blackburns. And he said, you don't know anything like enough about Black history to write a book. Hmm. Crestfallen. <laughs> <laughs> I asked him what he wanted me to do, and he said, I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine, Dr. James St. George Walker of the University wow. of Waterloo. And at Dr. Hill's suggestion, and Jim became my dissertation advisor, and I entered a PhD program in the history of race, slavery, and imperialism, as it was called then, at the University of Waterloo at the age of 39, and I finished it at the age of 47. And Jim still tells the, the, the story. He says that I, everything that he made me take out of my dissertation, I put back in and won the Governor General's Award for it. <laughs> <laughs> because I got a home in Glory Land, a lost tale of the Underground Railroad, wow. published in 2007, was the first and remains, sadly, the only book on African Canadian history ever to win the Governor General's Award. Wow, wow. Ooh, Carolyn, <laughs> we're just at the beginning and you've given us so much already. Um, now back to the dig, like I know you were part of this very important archeological dig in 1985 uh, concerning Lucy and Thornton. So could you tell our listeners more about the dig and, and the, the days you know, leading up to it and the days of and, and just what that experience was like? Well, I wish I could show you pictures. I have wonderful shots of this archaeological square is all laid out in that schoolyard. Mm -hmm. And I have pictures of the, the people digging and the children digging and finding things. And I have a beautiful picture of Paul Anderson, who was the president of the Ontario Black History Society in 1985, digging with school children That's on awesome. the side. It's beautiful. In his suit. And his, <laughs> it's a beautiful shot. Um, but we found thousands of clues to the Blackburns' lives in Toronto at that site. We discovered the foundation of this long, narrow house with a short side towards the street. And it was only three rooms deep. It had a living room, a bedroom, and the kitchen was at the back. And we know it was the kitchen because we found the fireplace in the corner, even with some bones in it of, of fish and animals that they had. Wow. had um, we didn't know it then. I didn't know it for some years, but that's called a shotgun house. It was a house that was very typical of African-American vernacular architecture in many places in the United States. We found broken dishes. We found glassware, everything from a wine glass to preserving jars to blue transfer printed china. We discovered pretty shell buttons from Lucy Black. Well, I think 
I can't identify them as Lucy Blackburn's dress, but I, I believe they're from her dresses. And this stunning multi-bladed pearl-handled pen knife. Again, I can't prove it belonged to Thornton, but it was in the layers of dirt that related to their occupation at the site. And it would have been something he would have been very sad to lose in about 1875. There were also children's toys and marbles and bits of broken china dolls and tea sets. And these were underneath the floorboards of the house. So we know they were, they were part of the occupation of the Blackburns. So we were very puzzled by that because we knew they had no children. Yeah. But we found out years later why. The Blackburns put up, hosted incoming freedom seekers in their home, uh, in, okay. including, you know who it is, and you know who I'm talking about, don't you? Oh, yes, uh, but I'll let you say that, yeah. Oh, tell me, tell me, come on. Is it C Cecilia? No, 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 this is Anne Maria Jackson. Oh, yes, with Albert Jackson and her, her children, yes. Anne yes. Maria Yep, and her seven children, including Albert, who would grow oh. up Toronto's first African-Canadian post person. Post oh. um, and uh, there was a lot of trouble about his taking his position in the mm -hmm. 80s. And uh, his brothers organized a protest movement. And, and in the end, Sir John, uh, um, Sir John A. Macdonald intervened, and he was able to take up his post. They needed the, they needed the black vote. In mm -hmm. But we believe they stayed with the Blackburns because they were lifelong friends. Wow. Anyway, there was a barn too and a hayloft, and that's the barn was where Thornton kept the horse and the carriage from his taxi business. And he took really good care of that taxi. It was painted yellow. It had red trim, and it, it had four passengers. And he sat upside up, up, up on the front on the box um, with the luggage strapped on the top behind. There's a wonderful picture of it. I wish I could show it to you, but it's on King Street from 1850, the 1850s. And I have a there's actually a painting of the Blackburn cab. Um, oh, by the way, Blackburns only ever had one taxi. Uh, there's okay. a myth in Toronto that that there was a Blackburn cab company with multiple taxis. There mm -hmm. wasn't. Ever it was just one. Yeah. He had one cab. Uh, lots of other people went into the business and started their own cab business after he did, mind you. The Blackburns lived very modestly. Yeah. And that was kind of puzzling to us because they, they made a lot of money in the cab business. But we also discovered that they built six small houses in the area behind the city hall area. Mm -hmm. That was called St. John's Ward, and it was an area where new immigrants found new homes in Toronto, many of them freedom seekers. And so he built, and his wife built, six small houses and rented them out at $10 a year, which was cheap even Wow, then. yes. <laughs> Yeah, to family after family after family of newcomers so they could help them get settled in a city. And they also gave to abolitionist causes. So they're remarkable people, really remarkable. Awesome. So um, who were they? What? Who were Lucy and Thornton Blackburn? Can you share a bit of their story with us and, you know, just, you know, give us some information about the book you wrote. And I encourage everyone to go get the book and Carolyn will tell us the name of the book again. So we all hear and go buy it and support it and read it and learn about this important aspect of Black Canadian history. Well, thank you. Um, the Blackburns actually had a riveting life story. Um, I'm gonna try and give you the short version because I've okay. <laughs> talked about them for a really long time. Um, but. Thornton was born on the shores of the Ohio River at Maysville, right in sight of free soil. When he was only three years old, a man came and bought him from okay. the man who believed he owned Thornton's mother 
and took that little boy away from his mother and took him up to the top of the hill above Maysville, it's above the Ohio River, and it was to the village of Washington. That man had a grandson at the home of the local postmaster. Uh, the lo local postmaster's house is where Thornton grew up to be about 14. And while he was there, he learned how to take care of horses and he learned how to take care of carriages, which was going to come in really handy. Yeah. When um, now, he didn't have his mom with him, but his older brother, Alfred, was living in the town. He'd been a sold, he also had been sold away when he was 11 and he was living in Washington. So the two brothers were at least in the same town until Thornton was 14. And when Thornton was 14, his owner died and he was sold down the river. Now, that means exactly what you think it does. Yes. It means betrayal in the English language, but it comes from slavery. It comes from Kentucky because Kentucky slaveholders sent people, their surplus enslaved people down the river to be sold to the cotton kingdom uh, as labor. And Thornton was lucky because he didn't make it to the deep south. A doctor named Gideon Brown bought him off the boat because he was looking for a young man who was good with horses. Mm -hmm. And he lived at Hardensburg and Thornton Blackburn lived with the Browns for the next three years until Dr. Gideon Brown died of an in an epidemic with two of his children. And his brother-in-law, who was a judge in Louisville, took Thornton to Louisville and he rented him out. He hired him to a dry goods store and his salary was paid to help support Mrs. Brown, the widow, and her children. And while Thornton was there, he added to his business skills because he's working. Mm -hmm. But he also did something that wouldn't be surprising to people who know 19-year-old young men. He fell <laughs> And the object of his affections was a very beautiful woman of probably Haitian extraction born in New Orleans, and very beautiful. And she was 28 years old. <laughs> but 19-year-old Thornton was a persificatious young man, and he was bold and very well-spoken, according to the records. And he convinced Mrs. Blackburn to become his bride. Her name in slavery was Ruthie, but I never call her that because she mm -hmm. called herself Lucy when she yeah. came. And that's how I know her. Anyway, Mrs. Blackburn was and Mr. Blackburn were only happy together for a couple of months. Her owners died. I hate the term owner. I know. I, I just there's just not really a good synonym, right? Yeah. People who claimed her service died, and she was auctioned off to the highest bidder to pay the company the couple's debts. Well, the man who bought her was going to send her down to the fancy girl markets in New Orleans or Natchez, which is exactly what you think it is. Mm -hmm. She was being sold into sexual slavery and her husband wasn't going to have any of it. So he arranged to get some forged freedom papers and he and his wife went to the ferry docks on June, July 3rd. In 1831, this is the day before Independence Day, and they mm -hmm. talked their way onto a steamboat wow. and made it all the way to Detroit, Michigan. Oh, awesome. I know, I know. It's an amazing story. They settled down there, and they were going to, I'm sure they thought they were going to have children that would be born in freedom, but that wasn't to happen for them. But they went to the Baptist services being held in people's houses, um, the Black communities' services. Yeah. 
um, because they with the leaders of the community had withdrawn from the Baptist church because they weren't being treated very well, frankly. And uh, the one run by the white people, and they would build Second Baptist, which is still the oldest standing institution in the African American population of Detroit in a few years after this, but it's the same community. Anyway, a slave catcher came and well, he was a person that Thornton had known in Louisville, it wasn't a slave catcher, but he came and he recognized Thornton on the street, went home and told. The Blackburns were arrested. Um, people came from Louisville to claim them and bring them back to slavery. The Blackburns were arrested, they were tried, they were going to be shipped back to Louisville when the Black community plotted a rescue. Mrs. Blackburn was spirited out of the jail in disguise. Her husband was grabbed from the jailhouse door the next day by a very well-organized um, crowd of people, both black and white, who objected to this. And they took him off on a wild ride to the river and got him to Canada too, where he and his wife and his rescuers were all jailed in the Western District Jail in Sandwich, which is now part of Windsor. Mm. Their extradition was demanded on the grounds that they had incited a riot and tried to kill the sheriff of Detroit. Had to be a felony, right? It has to be a felony to be extradited yeah. for it. This is the first extradition case in peacetime between Canada and the United States. <sighs> they made history so many times. <laughs> That's what's so fascinating to me. Like their story is just awesome. Like it's amazing. Uh, I'll let you continue to tell us more about, <laughs> about them. This part blows my mind. So John Colburn was the Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada. He was in Toronto, right? Government House uh, was, well, the governor's mansion was where Roy Thompson Hall is today. And he decided that he didn't want to send them back to slavery, of course, because he was anti-slavery himself. But on the other hand, he really couldn't free them outright. This is only 20 years after the War of 1812. And the people who had invaded across the border in 18, the War of 1812 were the Kentucky Volunteers. He didn't want to get into a huge diplomatic incident. So what he did, this is astonishing. Colburn had his executive council, which included Reverend John Strawn, who was going to be the first bishop of York, first bishop of Toronto, and they came up with Canada's first articulated refugee reception policy to protect the Blackburns. And it remains the foundation of our extradition laws right to this day. Oh, wow. That still gives me chills. I know. <laughs> so they came to Toronto in 1834. They, Thornton worked as a waiter at, the Os at Osgoode Hall for a little while, but he wanted to be independent. I always say that Canada may have been a haven for people who came from slavery, but it wasn't heaven. There was plenty of racism. Yes. And working for white people was probably just as awful as in Toronto as it might have been in a northern city in the U.S. Anyway, Thornton got the idea from a Montreal, I don't know how he found out, but there was a new cab just come in from England to Montreal. And he had one built in Toronto. He started the first taxi business in Upper Canada. Now, Thornton had been reunited with his brother, Alfred, because Alfred had run away from slavery in 1829, so five years before 1834 when the Blackbirds made it to Toronto. So he's in Toronto, too, working for Enoch Turner, the brewer who built Enoch Turner's schoolhouse. Yes. And the two brothers did something remarkable, but I'm not going to tell you that part of the story because I'll tell you why afterwards. Okay. 
Um, but the Black Friends went on and they became very prosperous. They did very well in the city. They gave of their own wealth to help build Little Trinity Church, which is an Anglican church just around the corner with yeah. where Mark Turner Schoolhouse is. They helped a lot of other people. They were involved in anti-slavery activity, including a company that was created in 1851 called Canadian Mill and Mercantile Association, which built a mill, a sawmill, gristmill, and general store at Buxton in southwestern, what is now southwestern Ontario, for the purpose of providing employment for incoming refugees from slavery. More and more and more were coming in because in 1850, the U.S. government had passed a very harsh fugitive slave law. That's the name of the law. And it had tremendous punishments for anybody who helped anyone get away. It was very punitive. So there were more and more people coming. And the Black community was worried that there would be prejudice generated in areas like farming areas in southwestern Ontario, where there wasn't a lot of open jobs with all these largely young men coming in. So they created their own employment system to make that happen. And in Toronto too, there was an employment office run by the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada, which was an integrated organization. So there was a very proactive and very um, foresighted approach, which Thornton Blackburn, in which he participated and which he helped pay for, which he helped pay for. The Blackburns retired from the business in the 1860s after the Civil War. And they continued to live off their income from their investments for the rest of their lives through the 1890s, which was remarkable. Mm-hmm. Thornton died in 1890, leaving $18,000 and six houses. Wow, that is amazing for that time period for um, somebody of African descent to, to, you know, accumulate that wealth and investment. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> And there was no pension. Mm-hmm. They're living off their investments only. They, there's a wonderful picture from the Toronto tax records in 1875, and it lists Thornton Blackburn gentleman, meaning he was able to live without working. Yeah. Oh, their story. <laughs> yeah, it's all told in the pages of I've Got a Home in Glory Land, a lost yeah. of the Underground Railroad. It's available from Dundurn Press in Toronto, but lots of the libraries have Amazon has it, and the libraries have it. The libraries okay. have it. Awesome. You can order it for you if you're interested. So people can get your book once again. I've got a home in Glory Land, a lost tale of the Underground Railroad. Um, so everyone, listeners, you have no excuse. It's at the library. It's on Amazon, Dundurn Press. You can find it anywhere. It's really a remarkable story. And thank you for giving us that snippet about their lives. I know there's so much more details, but um, people can get it. People can get those details when they get your book. Join me next time on part two in conversation with Dr. Carolyn Smarts Frost. Overcomers. Might I add, it is in our DNA to overcome. Our melanin tells a story of matchless beauty and perseverance. Listen as we journey. See, our skin has always been more than what meets your eye. It's deeper than that. Like treasure immersed in the depth of the sea, buried underneath, hidden, but has never lost its value.
See, the pressure of our oppressors could never cancel a people chosen to exist. We always rise above, finding our way to the surface where you can't miss our glow when the sun hits. Our melanin tells a story of long-suffering partnered with a passion to see change, pressed down, stifled and silenced. Still, we have found our voice, joined together distinctively with the hand of God. Hear our outcry of hope as we journey black to Canada. Thank you.